this morning, as we move into the scriptures, uh, we look into Luke chapter 12. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in verses uh, 13 through 21 specifically this morning, really talking about um, the idea of the simple life. I think you and I probably all would recognize that, that we have pretty complex lives, right? There's a lot going on with a lot of us seemingly most of the time. But it only takes one little thing that you don't think about a lot to help you realize that really it's the simple things in life that really matter. Anybody ever go to take a shower and your hot water's not working? It's a pretty big bummer. Now, i got to be honest, I don't get in the shower most mornings. I do shower. Uh, but I, I have a lot of people that seem to be like, I heard like a breath, like you guys were skeptical of that. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think most mornings when I get in the shower, I go, man, I really hope it's working today. I just expect it to work. You ever been uh, kind of newlywed yourself and decided to support your wife and her endeavor of hosting a pretty substantial uh, wedding party at your home and then have your entire air conditioning go out the day before? Pretty big bummer, right? <laughs> Didn't wake up thinking, man, I really hope the air conditioner works today. I think I have every day since that day now <laughs> at this point. But the simple things in life, necessity, something that we often take for granted because we've built a lot of stuff into our lives, so much so that even we, these modern consumer Americans, went through this phase a few years ago where we decided, hey, you know what? Actually, I think we have too much stuff. There was this lady, her name is Marie Kondo. Uh, she's of Japanese descent. Uh, she wrote this book called Spark Joys. Anybody remember this? This was like a pretty big wave that, that went through uh, a, a lot of different folks culturally in America. She had this idea and it, it's this, this pattern of living where she said, I want you to take the stuff that you have. I want you to hold it in your hands. And like, if it doesn't, quote unquote, spark joy, then you get rid of it. You throw it out, right? The idea was to declutter one's life. To get to a place of mental health and physical health even that was better because when we live these lives that are just filled up with stuff, it just gets hard to live. Um, I'm probably like every other human in America, and I would probably watch it if I didn't have kids, but we've watched this episode of Bluey twice this week where the kids, they're, they're the parents are trying to get the kids to get rid of toys. There's a basket for all the special toys that they want to keep. And then there's a basket for all the toys that they're going to give away. If any of you have ever had children and been a part of this exercise yourself, this resonates with you. Because you start to put things in the special basket. And all of these toys end up in the special basket except for a few that you've snuck into the giveaway basket. But then your kids see that and now everything is special yet again. It's tough for us to live simply. And it's not just because we're busy. And it's not just because we like to have stuff. 
Those things are true. I would honestly tell you that the reason that we live like that is because we're terrified. We're scared to death. We're scared to death to not have everything. We're scared to death because we think we're not going to have everything we need. We're scared to death because we think we don't have as much as the person that lives next door to us has or the person that we graduated college with or that person that, that, that we want to be like and desire to have the things that they have. We're scared to death quite often because we think we don't have enough. And if we don't hoard up and if we don't gather and if we don't have all of these things, we're not going to have enough. Today in, in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to encounter someone that was fearful, that was scared, that they didn't have enough. And it prevented him from living the beautiful, simple life. God was inviting him into because he didn't know who he was. He didn't know his identity. Three things as we look into Luke's gospel today, Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, three things we're going to see that will help us understand what it means to live the simple life and to go from asking this question of what do I have to give? Like, what am I responsible to give? What am I responsible to give others? What am I responsible to give to the church? What do I have to give to any different thing that's asking me for something, seemingly? What do I have to go to this place where I say, what do I have to give? What do I have? What do I possess that I can give to others? Three very specific things I want us to see that come out of this text today. Luke chapter 12. Number one is this. What I have does not define my identity. What I have, what I possess, what I own, what belongs to me in this temporal human way does not define my identity. Second, this is really important. I must protect my identity. I must protect my identity. Now, this is not in the sense that I'm going to lose my identity, but I could lose an understanding of the reality of who I am and who God has called me to be in Christ Jesus. Third, how I give will reflect my identity. It's a hard sentence to read. Here's the reality. I don't like it that much either, probably. But I know it's true. We've walked the past few weeks and understood that Jesus says very clearly and very plainly where our treasure is, our heart will be also. We're going to see today how what we give, and I don't mean an amount, but what we give towards where our heart is aimed will reflect who we are. This is Luke's gospel, chapter 12, beginning of verse 13, says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance 
of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God, indeed. The first thing that we see in this passage that I think is really profound is that someone is coming to Jesus and they want Jesus' help. This is not abnormal in the life of those who walked alongside and had encounters with and followed Jesus. Jesus was constantly being asked for help. He was being asked to heal. He was being asked to, to, to do incredible miracles that help people be restored to physical life. All the while, Jesus is restoring them to spiritual life in so many ways and giving them not just a platitude or not just a principle or not just a teaching, but revealing the kingdom of God to them. In this moment, something that's really unique, Jesus is asked in Luke's account to be something that people don't usually ask Jesus to do. This man comes to him and says, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my share of inheritance. Now, by all accounts, this story reflects potentially, you know, we don't know, obviously, of this person. We don't know all the siblings they have, but it seems just the way that it's written that it would just be this person and his brother. Now, when you think about inheritance, I think in many ways you and I would probably think, well, okay, well, that means that, like, his brother's got more than half and is not giving him his fair share. A couple of things to point out historically is largely that in the Jewish culture, in the Hebrew culture, the firstborn was typically entitled to more. Not saying that's how it ought to be done, just saying that's how it was done. All right? So typically it was somewhere around two-thirds. But this man is saying, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus, not being rude, not attempting to insult him, but really driving toward the fact that this is a heart issue, an identity issue that this man has, says, no, no, no. I'm not going to be your judge or be your arbitrator in this moment, but I am going to tell you exactly where you are, where you find yourself. And notice that he doesn't just say to him, Jesus says, or the word says rather, and he said to them. So this, these words that Jesus speaks are for all those who are within earshot, everyone who is following, and this is what he says. He says, take care and be on your guard, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The first thing that Jesus says in this moment, this beautiful teaching, is that what 
one has does not define one's identity. Your life and my life is not defined by the abundance or lack of abundance even of possessions that we have. There's a million ways for us to describe and talk about who we are. But quite often, I think we revert to the things that we think bring us some measure of security. What we have. What we desire to have, even. But the way God's Word talks about who we are in Christ Jesus is radically different than what we have. It's actually about who has us. It's very different. Look into Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and you'll find these words. This young church in, in Colossae, this, this young area of believers, these people that have come to know Jesus Christ, Paul explains very clearly and with some pretty powerful words that are indeed not metaphorical about who you are and who I am as believers in Christ Jesus. It says this, if you then, have, or if then rather, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seeking. Seated at the right hand of God. So this is kingdom language. This is what, what am I seeking language? This is pursuit language. He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And this is for all those who have trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what this says. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Three really big things that stick out of this. Number one, that just really help us shape and see and get at the heart of what the scriptures are always pointing us to with regard to our identity. Number one, we're called to set our minds away from what we naturally, physically think and desire to set our minds upon. We're called to refocus, to reshift, to redirect to the good news of Jesus Christ. Second, it says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, here's how often we have been brought up or, or we talk about Jesus. We talk about Jesus being in our life or Jesus being in our heart. And I think there's a lot of really good intent in that. But here is a deep reality for us to understand in accordance with not what we think or what's tradition, but what God's word says. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here's the reality. We can't help but make it about ourselves. So we say that, you know, Jesus is, is in me. Here's the reality. You're way more in Jesus than Jesus is in you. <laughs> And I don't mean that in the sense to say that Christ is not with you by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But we need to have a helpful understanding of our identity. I am in Christ. I, I'm a part of his life. I've been drawn into him. We have, me and I have these friends that are parents and uh, they were like, we, they had kids and started living. They would do the wildest things, like just stuff that they would normally do, like big trips that you don't take little kids on and stuff where we, at the time, I think ourselves and other friends would kind of look at them and say like, whoa, like, y'all are like just still like doing the things that you guys have done 
and you're like bringing your kids along for the ride. And I'll never forget, he, like the dad made this really poignant statement. He just said, well, I mean, really, we invited them into our lives, not vice versa. Right? Quite often, I think, and that analogy is not perfect, but, but I hope you can see where I'm going with this. Quite often, we seem to live as if Christ is something like, I'm, I'm letting Christ be a part of my life. No, no, no. Your life is in Jesus. He expounds and he says in this way in verse 4, the third thing, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears. It's really important for us to understand that Jesus is not first in our lives, and then there's some other stuff. No, he is our life. This is eternal life. As we looked week and week after week after week, we looked at pursuit and we looked at what it means to know our purpose and understand that who we are is meant to be those who know and experience and enjoy God. In John's gospel in chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus prays and shares and teaches you and me what real life is. He says, this is eternal life that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son, who he sent. This is life. That you are in Jesus. And Jesus is quick to share with someone who thinks he's just asking for money. He's really asking, what's my identity? Like, who am I? Because if, he, if I don't have this stuff, then I don't know who I am. And Jesus says, who you are ultimately is not defined by that stuff. Who we are is defined by our relationship to Jesus Christ. So what we have is not the thing that defines our identity. Second, Jesus says that we're called to take care and to be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he begins to describe this story of a rich man. He tells it as a very genuinely good-hearted in a, like in a consolation way, but in a powerful way, he tells a cautionary tale. He says, there was this guy, he was rich. He had all this stuff. He had so much stuff that he didn't know what to do with all the extra stuff. So he tore down what he had and he built something more to protect all of his things. Jesus says, that we are to protect and guard against the things that would tell us that our identity comes from anything apart from who he is and what he's done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. That's where real life comes from. But the person in this story seems to think that his real life, what's really life, is actually all of the things that he has. He uses this language down in verse 19 that as God writes his word, as the Holy Spirit carries along the pen of Luke and those who transcribe these words, it's just so beautiful and so poignant and something we need to recognize because this unfortunately 
is how if apart from our recognition of our identity in Christ, this is how we talk to ourselves. I want to read this and say, this, that's not me. But look at what he says. Starts in verse 19, and he begins to tell his soul. Soul, we're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You have all of this stuff you've accumulated, that you've amassed, all of these possessions. And as a result, you can relax. You can eat. You can drink. You can, you can be merry. Right? But what happens? God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? He's told himself that he's safe and that he's secure because he has all of these things. He's framed and built and constructed and idealized and believes that his identity is in what he has. So much so that he tells his eternal soul that he's going to be okay. When the Lord comes... It's in this moment that he recognized that all of these things could never have comforted his soul. None of this stuff would transfer. None of it goes with him. Jesus calls us to be on guard. The, the language that's used here around soul, that, that word to describe it in, in throughout the history of the Old Testament, the idea of a soul is, is really of this phrase of being insult, which means it means being someone that receives the very breath of God. That's what it means to have a soul. And in fact, in the New Testament, this is carried out in a unique way, where in Luke's gospel here, it's defined as a soul as being one who, because they have God's breath in them, this person has received God's breath. This is their distinct identity. That they were created in God's image for his glory. That they're of value to God. And this person in this story, Jesus is saying, this person of immense value to God, who he's endowed with his very breath that God has created, is saying, you're going to be okay because we got a bunch of stuff. And that's nuts. And you know it, and I know it. But here's the reality. We often believe that too. Not a lot of amens on that one. But you do, and I do. We believe this too, that if I have these things, if I just have this stuff, if I can just get this or I can get to this place or if I can get, the, if I can get my job to the next level or if we could just get the 401k to this or if we could just hit that number, retirement's going to be okay. Or if, if I could just invest here, I think this is a really good option and this could change the trajectory of my family's life and all the while we're missing that our life is hidden in Christ Jesus and that he's our life. And we don't have life apart from him. And God have mercy upon us for thinking that we could give our soul something that only God could give. And you have to be on guard against it. And I have to be on guard against it. 
Because when I don't know my identity, when I'm not believing actively, currently, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for my identity, for my soul source of love and hope and joy, it is in those moments I fall prey and I begin to live in such a way where I would say, if I just had this or if I just had that or if we could just get here, then I'm going to be okay. All the while my soul is missing out on the beautiful truth that not when I had stuff, when I was at my most invaluable, when my life was a total wreck, when I was full of sin and depravity, it was not in my best moment, it was in the worst moment, which was in fact all of the moments that Christ died for me. That in that moment, He's like, I want that one. I love him or her. God loves us. But we have to be on guard against this. Paul writes to Timothy. We looked at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 last week. And his, he's speaking to the rich. He's speaking to people that live in affluence. But, but when we talk about protecting our identity, look at 1 Timothy 6, 10. He says this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I want you to think about the gravity of that. Not money. Words are important. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Remember, even in verses 17 through 19, he's talking to the rich and he says, he's, he's not telling them degrade your or downgrade your lifestyle, give away everything you have. You're not, there's a certain threshold and if you go beyond that, then you've got too much, you've got to all give away. No, 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 he's not talking about their stuff, he's talking about their heart. And in this he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And when he uses this language, it sounds like he's talking to people who are rich. It sounds like he's talking to people who are, who are full of wealth. And you know who he's talking to? People who have nothing. Go read that previous section, specifically verses 6 through 10, and you're going to see that Paul is talking to those who don't have money. And he's saying, I'm scared about you having a love of money. You want to get to somewhere you're not at. You want to have things. You're craving things. You're naturally desiring these things in and of your flesh that you don't have. There's not this one group of people that's prone to this. It's all of us. No matter where you fall on a socioeconomic spectrum, if you're in Christ Jesus, far be it from us being those who would wander away from him. And I understand that this, this is loaded and you're like, well, what are the theological implications? Are these people like really walking away from Jesus? Like, does that mean they never knew Jesus and so they're walking away because they never knew him? And here's what I would tell you the short answer is, I don't know exactly. I got some thoughts. But here's what I'd tell you in this moment. I don't want ever to be the one who has wandered away from Christ. So you and me, let's make sure that we guard ourselves against a lack of understanding of what our real identity is and where our real hope lies. Finally, what I give will reflect my identity. Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
this person who accumulated, this rich man who accumulated all of these things, the things that were of his concern ultimately reflected who he is, what his real identity was. His identity was found in what he had. And as a result, perish the thought that this would be said of us. I want it to be said of me only by God's grace and through his spirit, but Man, I was faithful. I was rich toward God. This is where I found that which my heart adored, that I loved. That in the, in the light of God's glorious grace and his resurrection, Jesus' death for me, his atoning sacrificial death, the finished work of the cross and the resurrection should be my greatest hope, my greatest joy. And I could be somebody that would give toward that. We've been asking this question for four weeks in a row. What do I have to give? Like, what do I have, what do I possess that I can give? I just want to ask this morning just some questions for you to think about for your heart, questions for all of our hearts. One, do I understand my identity? That my identity is that I am hidden with Christ in God. That that's where my identity comes from. Second, am I placing my faith in what I have or who has me? Jesus told us we, we cannot serve two masters. So, so where am I placing my faith and my trust? And third, how can I be rich toward God? What does it look like to live a life of giving? Here's what I would say. I, I love that Drew does this each week as he invites us into a time of, of giving and we have a time of offertory. That's really intentional and really important for us in the life of our church. And here's the reality. We know that... that most people seemingly give online. I don't know the statistic or whatever, but, but it's pretty obvious that most people give online. Most people don't give traditionally through a check or putting money in the basket. We've even had people ask us, like, why do we still pass the basket? Why do we still pass the basket? Well, for those of us who call this place home, for those of us who, who worship here, it's important for us to touch that, to hold that, to recognize that God has called us to give. So pursuing Jesus in giving at Double Oak Community Church, I, I want to talk with you like, very candidly about what this looks like. If this is your church home and this is your body and now we're starting to say, all right, I think I'm starting to get this giving thing. I'm understanding what Jesus is saying about giving. How does that apply to my life here? I call this church home. This is what this looks like. Pursuing Jesus in giving looks like giving to the ministries of this church. We're, we're a young, growing congregation that is in need financially to be able to execute the ministries that God has called us to. Here's what that looks like. Proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. If you give to this church, you're giving to a church that is centered on the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. His life, his death, his resurrection, our salvation, nothing else. Second, Spiritual formation and transformation. How many of you in this room have been a part of this body and you've seen God change your heart or grow you in some, some way, shape, or form? And I'm not holding my hand up to instruct you how to hold a hand up. I'm holding my hand up because God has changed me through this body and the ministries of this church. Third, missions. There are things that this church is a part of all throughout the world, and I want to take a couple of moments this morning to tell you about them. This is where God is using your gifts as you give to the ministries of this church. Chelsea, 
obviously. We're, we're, we're working with local ministries here to feed, to care for, to offer benevolence to those in our community. Second, Shelby County. We work with a number of ministries that are a part of our, not just community locally here, but also within the county itself. Third, Alabama. And I'll tell you about this one. This is one of our local partners that, that we get to impact a ton of people through. And it's called Alabama Childhood Food Solutions. It's a ministry that provides ministry to food insecure families. God's Outreach and Della Pender gives ministry to families in benevolent need all around here. Blanket Fort Hope is a ministry to child trafficking survivors. We're a part of that ministry. As your gifts to this church are rescuing people out of trafficking situations. Families Count, Lifeline, Foster Care Ministry. There are children that are in dire need of a home, and there are more children than there are homes. There are folks that are in need of a home. When you give to the ministries of our church, you are giving to those things. Hearts and Hands, Frank and Donna Berger, they're a part of our body here. They do an incredible job of benevolent ministerial care to all types of people that have physical and, and needs that are, are in and around their home in this community. Throughout Mississippi, for Two Feathers Ministry, Rick and Deb Kessiker, Choctaw, Gospel Proclamation, Benevolent Caring Ministry for those that are in a poor Native American community outside Choctaw, Mississippi. In Maryland, Church of the Harbor, uh, Jeff Belcher, and the work that he does in planning this beautiful, incredible Christ-centered church in a really hard, barren area where the gospel is not known and experienced. Florida, we have a, a friend that is dear to our hearts that has a ministry called Songs in the Night, and she very specifically is located in Florida and has tons of people. It's a widow's ministry where those who have lost their spouse are able to get care and love and connection with other people, Bible studies, retreats, getting affiliated with folks, all kinds of folks that are experiencing exactly what they're walking through and growing and grieving with others and experiencing and rejoicing in hope with others as well. The southeastern United States is an area in which she takes part in and shares a ton. Ukraine, um, this is bringing the next, the kind of list of countries is bringing good news. Ian Thompson, one of the ministries that he has in the countries of Ukraine, Tajikistan, Kurdistan, Pakistan, South Sudan, and specifically Nepal, there are things like pastor training, children's ministry to those children who are impoverished and need clothing and need shelter. There's all kinds of ministry happening in all of these countries, and specifically in Pakistan, I would draw your attention to the fact that there are folks that are in brick kiln slavery collectives, people that are legitimately indentured servants that through our gifts are rescuing people out of slavery. In Romania, children's ministry, care toward families that are in deep need of not only the gospel proclamation, the good news of Jesus Christ, but also physical needs for families in marginalized and poor areas. And finally, in Uganda, with Simone's kids creating educational opportunities and opportunities to preach the good news of Jesus to those that are there that would never have that opportunity apart from this ministry. When you and I are faithful and we, get, uh, we take the initiative and we say, I know my purpose. My purpose is to glorify God. I want to take the initiative and in giving, it looks like giving to the ministries of our church. I want to do that. God does amazing things with it. Things beyond anything that we even could describe or dreamt up. We didn't know these places existed. And God created relationships and formed opportunities. And the world is being changed. And we get to be a part of that. You might want to be a part of that.
Me too. Brothers and sisters, when we give faithfully, we get the opportunity to be rich toward God. Why? Because we are loving the least of these. We are ministering to those that are not different than us. They're actually the same as us. They're someone who's created in God's image for his glory. We get the opportunity to do that. Here might be the question, uh, or actually the statement I want to share with you this morning, because I want to be bold, and here's the reality. I've said this a couple weeks in a a row, and I know we need to wrap up and walk toward communion here in a second, but I want to just be very clear. Like, we just do this together. We are a family. We grieve together. We rejoice together. And we just, I, I don't know how to say in a deeper way, um, not me, not Michael, but we, the, the people that are a, a part of this church, like we need your help. I know that there are many of you who are here who call this place home and you're not giving. I don't know what you give. I know what one family in this church gives, and it's my own. I don't, I don't have any idea about what anyone's contribution is, but we can just know by raw numbers, we have a very clear understanding there are people who are taking part in experiencing this body and yet aren't contributing. And here's what I would ask you to do. I would ask you to go to the Lord and pray about that. The goal in no way, shape, or form is condemnation. The actual goal is invitation. Come be a part of your family and faithfully, consistently, continually give here so that we can all together watch God do amazing things and transform our hearts and the lives of those around us. Amen? Amen. You may also have this question for yourself or this statement. You might say, I need help. I want to give, but I don't know what that looks like. I've never done it. I don't know how to give. Last week, Michael, you talked about, hey, 10% might sound more like the floor than the ceiling, that we have a new and better covenant, as, as the book of Hebrews describes, even in the old covenant and the way that they gave then. So how do I start? Where do I get started? Here's what I would tell you. I'm not a financial advisor. I told you last week, they, they let me get an accounting degree at Troy University. I don't know that they're, like, I'm not on any billboards down there, all right? Here's the thing. If you want some help, we want you to send an email to giving at DOCC.org so we can help connect you with someone who can financially help you walk you through a place where you say, look, I'm living Romans 7 right now. I don't do what I do want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do. I want to give, but I don't know how to give. Help me. How do I figure that out? Let us help you. Let us help you. Why? So that we can be a body of people that, that can live with this posture of the heart to say, not what do I have to give and pull back, but say, what do I have to give and lean into one another. If you will, bow your head and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to a moment today in our service, Father, instituted by Jesus, the table, Perhaps the most tangible and beautiful picture of giving that we could ever experience. Father, what we find is the representation of Christ's body given for us. And the cup, the new covenant, poured out in Jesus' blood for the very forgiveness, remission of our sins. Father, would you draw us to give, not out of obligation, but out of opportunity, out of worship, out of recognition of what you've given us, that we are rich beyond anything we can imagine because of your son, Jesus.
We pray these things in your name. Amen.